Welcome to Heart of the Enneagram. I'm Chris Copeland. And I'm Sandra Smith. And we invite you to take a courageous and loving look at what is. In solidarity, it's more than just wishing well for the other. It's more about, I really perceive my own well-being uh, intimately and ultimately tied to the well-being of others. Hi, Chris. It's good to be with you once again. Hi, Sandra. It always is a treat to have time together with you and to be interviewed and in conversation with others about this important work. And we come together at a time when our country feels completely chaotic. Many of us are filled with grief and sadness at the recent events in Minnesota and across our country. You know, each of us is being impacted in different ways by what's happening right now. And of course, not all of us impacted equally. At this moment in our country's history, people are taking part in vigils and demonstrations against systemic racism and police brutality. And it seems it seems there are greater numbers of people participating, and it seems with greater purpose since the recent murder of George Floyd, a black man, at the hands of white police officers. Yet again, yet again. So lots of sadness and grief in our country, and I'm, I know I've been feeling the last couple days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in addition to sadness and grief, anger, mm -hmm. uh, and um, frustration and just outrage, all of those things. It is in this context that we engage this particular episode in season five, a season that focuses on elder wisdom. We'll be interviewing people who are reflecting on their lived experiences, gleaning wisdom from their years. And as they share, we'll explore the ways that their Enneagram type has been both challenging and supporting. I am anticipating a rich season, Chris. So today as our uh, elder uh, who will be offering wisdom, uh, both uh, from his own life and also in the context in which we find ourselves today uh, is Luther Smith. And um, Luther uh, is a professor emeritus of church and community at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. And in fact, uh, both Sandra and I had the privilege of being students of Luther when we were students at Candler. Um, and Luther served there for 35 years uh, on the faculty there at Candler School of Theology. And the title of his teaching position reflects his commitment to social transformation as an expression of religious conviction. And Luther writes and speaks extensively on issues of church and society and congregational renewal, uh, interfaith cooperation, Christian spirituality, and in particular, the thought of Howard Thurman. Uh, Luther was a theological contributor to the PBS documentary, Back Against the Wall, about the life of Howard Thurman. Luther is a founder of the Interfaith Children's Movement in Georgia, and he currently serves as the coordinator for the Pan-Methodist Campaign for Children in Poverty that mobilizes churches and schools of the Methodist denominations to be active to and in advocacy for children in poverty. And Luther is a certified and practicing mediator. Um, so uh, welcome, Luther. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Before moving into the interview, let's engage a presence practice so that we can listen more deeply to the conversation. So we invite our listeners and ourselves to take some deep breaths to the belly center. Relax the shoulders and soften the jaw. And for a moment, simply take in the world through your five senses, sounds and sights, smells and touch and taste. Take in the world through your five senses, which brings us more fully into our bodies. And the more present we are, the more deeply we listen. And so we're all invited to listen with a grounded presence, an open heart, and a curious mind. Thank you, Sandra. Um, Luther, I want to begin um, 
just acknowledging, as Sandra and I did at the top of the show, um, the context in which we find ourselves in in the United States uh, right now in the in June of of 2020, and um, of course we're, we've been in the midst of a pandemic, and then in particular um, with the the killing of George Floyd. Um, as one of many people of color uh, who've been killed by police and other uh, folks um, and the response, the social response to that, which as we mentioned is grief and sadness and anger and many of those more emotions. Um, wanting to hear from you, given your experience as a writer, as a professor, as somebody who's been thinking and studying about church and community um, and spirituality, all of those things, what what wisdom, what um, insight, or just what feelings or thoughts are coming up for you in these times? Well, it's a um, mixture of feelings and thoughts. Um, one of the things that was part of my um, early experience in life at age eight was the uh, death of Emmett Till. Mm and living in a household that was uh, very engaged in uh, bringing awareness to my sister and to me and as well as the discussions that were occurring around our uh, dinner table. Uh, the Emmett Till uh, incident, which is just, you know, it wasn't the first, it was one of, of many other uh, violent acts against uh, black people, but, to, but for this to be against this young boy um, accused of making some remark or whistling at a white woman and then ending up uh, being beaten and then uh, thrown in the river with his body being so distorted that his mother could not identify any part of him except for the ring that was on his finger. Uh, and seeing that image uh, publicized in Jet Magazine at age eight and having that image burned into my memory over all these years um, and the mother insisting that it would be an open casket funeral so that the world would have to see what was done to her son. And to think how justice did not occur for Emmett Till in terms of uh, having his accusers um, who were brought to trial but not found guilty. Um, and all of the incidents since then, there, you know, there, there's, there has been for me a profound uh, distrust in what we call the justice system. Uh, as well as marking the kind of racism that has been persistent since the very birth of the nation. Mm -hmm. So um, the feelings of this particular time go back <laughs> over the span of my life and the lynchings, the civil rights struggles, the actions by not only police, but by uh, juries, and judges in ways that can be very discouraging. And yet, you know, the struggle goes on. That's, that's how justice comes to be. As uh, Martin Luther King was quoting Theodore Parker, uh, the moral arc of the universe is long uh, and it bends toward justice. And that conviction for me has been important in staying in the struggle uh, to not be overwhelmed by all of the kinds of resistance to really having justice in this country around racial matters and hoping that uh, this might be a time of some significant change. Um, we have said that a thousand times before. Yeah. And maybe there's been some incremental marching for it, but certainly not enough. What's been very encouraging is to see, I think the increased racial diversity of protests, mm -hmm. which says something I think to political leaders and business leaders about what may be now uh, the thing for them to do 
that has community support. Um, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I get distraught, of course, at the at the looting and rioting because a lot of it, I think, is not at all associated with the kind of protest that is going on. People who are just opportunists taking advantage of a situation. Uh, however, it seems at times as if until the economic concerns of a community are threatened, there really isn't the sort of let's really do something uh, different than we've done in order to assure ourselves that this will not happen again. There's, there's all of that, uh, I think, um, cynicism as well as hope that stirs and it's my it's, it's my desire that hope would win out, um, certainly uh, in the land. I, my, my emotional landscape insists on staying hopeful, insists on staying uh, involved in issues of struggle for justice and in believing that uh, to do otherwise is our death. I'm just so aware as we talk about this that Howard Thurman was a major figure in the civil rights movement. And I don't know what wisdom or if he were here, what do you suppose he might offer? Um, Anything from his own teachings that might uh, bring us insight or hope? Um, Howard Thurman's most quoted book I think perhaps his most seminal book is Jesus and the Disinherited. And in that book, Thurman talks about uh, how we find ourselves uh, with community on the brink of destruction, if not actively uh, functioning in destructive ways, when we have uh, such a division among peoples such that there is no contact among them. And he says, uh, beginning with a situation of no contact, uh, we may then find ourselves uh, moving toward contact, but no fellowship. So um, perhaps uh, one is able to ride public transportation with a diverse group of people, but there's not any real interaction with them in terms of hearts knowing hearts. Um, And out of that, Uh, He says, contact without fellowship often leads to unsympathetic understanding, which means that, yes, you've had some contact, but perhaps the very people who are on the bus with you uh, are folks whose behavior on the bus you don't like. And so you come forth with all kinds of explanations as to why they have these behaviors, uh, why they are rude, why they are somehow discounting your presence. Um, what kind of community and home situations have led them to behave this way. And it's this sort of unsympathetic understanding that Thurman says leads to hate walking the earth. And I think Thurman is right that when we have uh, alienation from one another, be it across racial lines or ethnic lines or, or religious lines or national identity lines, when we have this kind of alienation, we're not talking about alienation as um, a pre-crisis situation. Alienation itself is the crisis. And it's important for us to be asking, uh, where do we have places of meeting? One of the most fundamental definitions of reconciliation is a place of meeting. And so where are we meeting one another to deepen not only the sense of contact, but to also the sense of fellowship and the sense of uh, understanding with one another, such that whatever we're about in terms of healing community wounds is not just done remotely, but is hopefully growing out of experiences of, of connection heart to heart. 
And I know at this time of pandemic and sheltering, it's difficult to uh, perceive how that will occur, but the opportunities are there, even, even in this setting. And certainly after we're no longer bound by, uh, I think the kinds of public health matters that lead us to sheltering. And so I think it's, it's important for each of us to be asking, where do I find myself in places of meeting and deep understanding? How am I sustaining that? What initiatives am I taking rather than waiting for someone to necessarily take the initiative with me? Um, how might I persist even when such meetings themselves are full of disappointment or conflict? Uh, do I feel then that I tried and now I can step back from that? Or is my own sense of identity and meaning and significance tied to being in relationships in ways that really do sustain the well-being of community, which also means uh, sustaining the well-being of my soul? I think um, when we're asking that kind of question, we're not just talking about what's a liberal or progressive uh, way of looking at our neighbors or even a, uh, a faithful uh, heart-rending way of being with neighbors. We're talking about solidarity. Mm -hmm. And um, in solidarity, it's more than just wishing well for the others. It's more about, I really perceive my own well-being um, intimately and ultimately tied to the well-being of others. That sounds like that last statement you made, Luther, sounds like bedrock for you. Mm. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. It's the kind of thing that you are involved with, not with the expectation that somehow or another, uh, whatever your vision might be of beloved community or um, you know, all these things being worked out are necessarily going to be in your lifetime or the lifetime of the coming generations. But you, you realize that there is something of, 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 the, um, of the fulfillment that one is anticipating in beloved community that occurs just at, about being in the process a beloved community. Yeah. Uh, one of the things over the years I have uh, revised in my own thinking is how we have used the word reconciliation. And I think so many people think of reconciliation as arriving at a time and a place where all of the problems um, among us are somehow or another diminished and we're living in a peaceable way with one another. It, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful vision. Uh, but I don't think reconciliation itself is contingent upon this kind of idealized understanding of what it means uh, for this moral arc of the universe to be pointing to justice. Um, and I, I don't think it helps us to be anticipating a time when things are fixed and uh, we no longer find ourselves in uh, misunderstanding and struggle. As I think all of us know, the most loving relationships you're in are never fixed. Uh, you don't try to uh, fix your neighbor or fix a partner or fix a spouse. And it's, it's this notion that uh, somehow or another you can arrive at a place where everything gets answered is another way of, I think, really misreading uh, human relationships and what it means to move through them with uh, disappointment at times, as well as celebration. Um, and we, we, don't, we don't relate with one another well <laughs> if we're uh, basically uh, working with the goal of fixing somebody. Mm. Or I think another way of looking at it is how one might feel if uh, we perceive someone else is working at fixing us and not <laughs> allowing the fullness of who we are to be part of what the relationship would be. So 
I think rather than reconciliation, which too often I think gets interpreted as somehow or another, um, the diminishment or the end of the struggles uh, between us or conflict, I, I think um, we are more helped by the idea of being involved in a reconciling process. And this is something I can begin to do uh, this day and the next day and the next day. And hopefully my heart is open enough to it to experience fulfillment in being involved in the process. Um, and yes, uh, there will be disappointment along the way, but that's part of what the process entails. Uh, there are no guarantees except the guarantee that you're in the process of reconciliation, which is, I think, the, um, the most important commitment we can make rather than saying that somehow or another this commitment must have these kinds of outcomes for me personally, mm -hmm. if I'm going to give my life to this kind of commitment. Mm -hmm. And it's this reconciling process that I think is the call upon each and every one of us, uh, for each and every one of us, and uh, for our collective experience of community together. Oh, that's so beautiful, Luther. I, I, have, I have witnessed you, I guess, tracked you off and on for the past 30 years. And I would say that you have such a steadfastness to this, um, an abiding presence and commitment to that kind of relationality that is, is inclusive of all of who we are. Some of the language that struck me is you talked about being open-hearted and you also talked about in that in that reconciling process being open-hearted and then you also talked about the heart-to-heart -heart connection which is sort of when we meet um and my wondering for you what what is what has helped you what has been part of your story that's allowed you to be in that open-hearted space to to be willing to do that heart-to-heart -heart connection what's that been like for you mm. I think for me, it's uh, recognizing, realizing how uh, having some really um, um, sort of rigid expectations of how people ought to be uh, fails relationship. Um, it, it fails the reality of the other person. It fails me in terms of the kinds of relationships I might have with persons. And so, uh, interestingly enough, at times, um, this kind of transformation has occurred through my own faith orientation and what it means to love all, even enemies. At times, it's come through um, uh, novels and so identifying with a character that as I as I hear um, how this particular character is saying things I don't like, but there are textures of this character that comes through that says that the sound of the genuine is in this character, mm. uh, even when there are these other behaviors that I find, if not offensive, then they're really a turnoff. And what I have to or what I have done is to uh, not try to impose upon the character a kind of mold <laughs> into which this character has to fit in order to make me feel more comfortable with the character. I have to be questioning what's going on with my heart that it is very quick to perhaps resist appreciating and embracing a person as one is. And so there are all of these uh, instances through uh, my own life, through the lives of others, uh, uh, reading about those who have crossed boundaries and discovered a greater uh, openness to, to life itself and not just the single individual, which uh, personally, I think has enabled me to be 
available to the aspects of myself that I may not like. Um, and to face them and to engage them, to embrace them, and to understand what does it mean to live with things that I may not as well as live with others, live with things within myself, to live with others that I may not um, like <laughs> or appreciate, uh, but there, there are ways to do that creatively <laughs> and not just uh, be in a, a situation of a fight or flight, which uh, neither of, of those responses is necessarily the most creative way to deal with that, which feels if, if, if not offensive, then threatening or at least uh, unlikable. We often forget that in that fight, flight, freeze, there's also relate. Within the last, oh, three years, I've been reading in the area of, of neuroscience. And one of the interesting uh, outcomes from the, the sort of, of research they've been doing in that field has been to indicate that fight or flight is uh, really not the first response that people have under threat. Uh, that even if it's uh, a second or two or part of a second, that the first response of the brain is to look around for help. Mm. And, and being a, a species that has grown up in tribes, we have looked to the tribe to in some way be responsive to uh, our situation of threat, as well as our situations of nurture. And, and what does it mean for us to then um, find ourselves not appreciating the significance of community in the very structure of our genetics um, and, and how that can be available to us as we think about the kind of anxieties we have about others, um, as well as how I believe we need to be taking seriously what kinds of communities are we um, involved with uh, entering? Um, how, how do we take seriously not only the communities of our birth, but the communities of our lived experience? Um, some of which we may say are our communities, others of which we may perceive as others' community, but how might we take seriously how our wholeness depends upon our capacity to appreciate that which is outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, um, and rather than always perceiving that which is other, uh, that which is ethnic, that which is other as somehow threatening to see it as life-giving. Uh, Howard Thurman made the observation as he was engaged in his own kind of research, even at the cellular level that uh, every understanding of community uh, vitality depends upon the capacity of the community to uh, extend beyond itself and to relate to others outside of itself in a creative way. Um, and if a community does not do that, then a community tends to feed on itself. And I think that can be important as we think about the various religious communities in which uh, people may be living and to be raising the question, how might some of the internal dynamics of our religious communities that are in conflict be a result of us being too insulated? Uh, how might some of the family dynamics, how might some of the dynamics of my own neighborhood or my own city or my own nation be the result of our failure to take seriously how our own vitality is dependent upon the capacity to relate in creative ways outside of its borders. As a student of yours, I remember um, especially, uh, well, several things that you've said, but I quote you often in my Enneagram workshops. And at the end of a chapel service, I remember you saying, 
in, in the timely way with silence and presence that you do. The only place of refuge is another person's heart. And you need such a refuge, and so do I. Thank you. And yes, that's actually a Thurman quote, and he, he concludes it by saying, we therefore must make of our hearts a swinging door. Uh, of course. And I think Thurman is right. Uh, yes. Wow. You know, and as you've been speaking, the other piece, um, the quote that I remember you uh, speaking is, we cannot close the book on ourselves or each other. Human beings are full of mystery. Mm. We cannot close the book on ourselves or each other. And Luther, I often use that as I begin teaching the Enneagram. Mm. We are not a type. We are a human being full of mystery with, as neural, neuroscience says, with neural preferences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's been my study of the Enneagram, just understanding my own neural preferences, what moves me in stronger ways than others, and do I want to uh, choose to continue that? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Well, this, this too relates to uh, what I was saying earlier about um, the complexity of oneself as it relates to uh, those aspects of ourselves that we may not uh, like or, or want uh, and how to be in relationship in a way that our likes or our wants or our desires do not in some way shut down our capacity to understand that the heart expands in engaging um, those realities, realities within ourselves as well as the realities within others. And, and uh, there was a point at which I decided there were some things about myself that I certainly will change um, and transformation may be quick or it may be over a, an extended period of time and I can celebrate that. Uh, there may be other things about myself that I am not going to put in extraordinary energy into changing as much as I'm going to um, put the energy into the way in which I hope I might become. Mm. So that, uh, you know, if you can pour so much energy into not doing something that it absorbs all of uh, the other type of energy that should be engaged in the creative dimension of becoming. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's some aspects of us with which we live and we, we have to, I think, uh, have strategies of containment so that they don't uh, dominate our our days and our and our energy and every now and then you may have to revisit those aspects of ourselves to be sure they haven't seeped out into the total <laughs> landscape of of the heart and behaviors um, and I, I think there are disciplines uh, uh, that we can practice to be attentive to that but it's it's another way of of indicating that we are so complex and diverse and the very thing that we perhaps most abhor in another uh, probably has some place of residence within us. Mm. Um, and we react to another as a way of making some statement about it within us. But if, if I can discover creative ways to relate to my neighbor, uh, perhaps I am also discovering creative ways to relate to what's going on within me. Mm. And also, uh, identify those things that enable me to be in, in touch with myself, uh, to, to embrace um, not only who I am, yes, yes, and the fullness of me, and not just the image of me I, I want to project, but the fullness of me, to embrace that, as well as to embrace the possibilities of who I might become 
by attending to it um, as best I can. Yeah, I love holding both of those. The the um, the pos the acceptance of what is and the possibility of what yes is mm -hmm. and can be. Um, I I wonder, Luther. Um, thank you for sharing that. I'm wondering about um, you know these patterns that we all have, the things that we don't like about ourselves. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share kind of some of your own journey, those places that you have been you've been able to transform, maybe those places you've been able to contain. Uh, what what that's been like for you? What have been some of those things that have tripped you up or those patterns that have recurred that have been challenging for you? From the earliest times of life that I can remember, I'm, I talked about Emmett Till at age eight. Um, I can remember at age five being concerned about who would be winning the presidential election, but this tells you something about the political uh, nature of, my, of uh, the household in which I, I uh, grew up. So for me, there has been um, this uh, whole environment of engagement and transformation. And so my first job was actually as a community organizer. And it entailed um, street demonstrations. It entailed taking over the welfare office and advocating for welfare recipients uh, in the office. It entailed uh, going to the local governor's office and making demands and uh, also being involved in all sorts of relationships that sought to get the transformation in this um, system that was supposed to be attending to the needs of, of families, but was failing in some uh, serious ways. And uh, what I discovered over time is that uh, I was more comfortable in those settings than I was dealing with conflict that was more um, intimate or conflict that was uh, of a smaller group. Uh, and I had to be raising uh, with myself, what's, what's going on about my um, uh, either anxiety or resistance to uh, not only uh, being involved in the conflict, but you know, and the anxiety will sometimes get you, <laughs> get to you before even the uh, experience of being in conflict itself, and it and it shapes your behavior. So um, I decided that I needed uh, training as a mediator to understand the skills and to have the experiences of uh, dealing with the, uh, the feelings as well as the process of transformation as it relates to conflict. And it was through that I found myself moving from uh, being on edge and the heart racing and searching for the exact thing to say to a place of being in the midst of some really turbulent uh, events uh, and, and as a mediator, being at rest and engaging it. And I think one of the ways in which I would describe this outcome is that uh, I found myself available to the conflict that was occurring, rather than finding myself on the edge of the conflict or removed from the conflict out of my own anxiety, discomfort, and perhaps inability. Uh, which is another way of saying that in finding myself available to the conflict, I was finding my voice. And I was finding uh, opportunities to be where my heart said I not only need to be, but where my heart said I want to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that um, has been critical to me, I think, uh, in terms of this, this journey of, of life that, that I've been in. And, and for me to even experience um, all sorts of miracles that occur out of conflict that um, are moments of celebration. 
um, we're deep, there's deeper understanding. Uh, we're able to move forward in more creative ways. And these are moments that occur uh, in all sorts of settings. It, they, they can be, you know, I've done mediation with um, people involved in the court system. I did mediations with um, the postal service. I, I've done um, other kinds of government mediations, but it's also been helpful in uh, working with uh, multi-faith groups and mediating conflicts there, um, serving on nonprofit boards, um, serving on a faculty. <laughs> Bless you. There <laughs> uh, are all these settings, as well as the, the sort of one-to-one -one relationships where I'm not in a mediating role, but I'm a subject in the conflict itself. And uh, I, I'm... I'm uh, I've come to the point of feeling that certainly there are many people in professional roles that really need, um, I think, some creative training regarding conflict transformation. But it's really all of us who can benefit from that kind of, I think, formation so that we're not just dependent upon our family experiences or our personal experiences. Um, and, and we make ourselves available when we're not sitting in, let's say the chair of a meeting, but we're at the table and there are all sorts of ways that we can have a voice in bringing forth not only our own voice, but the voices of others that I think enable us to really be um, more of a beloved community, even in, in um, small settings. Luther, just in tracking what you've just said, um, I just heard so many gifts of type nine, and I know that's the type that you lead with, and you've named that to us anyway. We haven't really named that on this episode yet, but just this sense of fairness and action and justice, you know, eights, nines, and ones are just hell-bent on fairness uh, and what's unfair, and how type nine as you said, it was just, I could do this in the welfare office. Mm. But when it came to a smaller group or one-on-one, -on -one, you knew there was some work to be done there. And what you named in this pre-conflict anxiety yeah. <laughs> was exactly why nine is called the mediator. Mm. It's a pre-conflict mediating, trying to avoid it. <laughs> and that was a beautiful articulation of that. And, and what a wonderful gift to yourself to stay the course and, and hone skills and grow yourself in that way. It was just uh, so beautiful to listen yeah, to. Absolutely. And, and I want to add to a word, uh, Luther, when you talked about as you learn to engage that more intimate conflict with them, or then uh, the words I heard you say was, I found my voice. And then I did, then I could ask what I wanted or get what I wanted instead of what I needed. And that's also a core aspect of the nine is, is understanding and claiming one's voice. Mm. And, and what is it that I want? Because nine so often feel like, does my voice matter? Is what's important to me? Is that important really in the world? And really being able to claim that voice and knowing what matters to you and what you want. Um, how beautiful. We have a thousand reasons to... Uh, conclude that um, silence is um, not going to hurt us now. Uh, and, and underneath that can be just this, um, this, this other awareness at the very depths of our depths <laughs> conveying to us uh, your silence has betrayed you. <laughs> and uh, yes, so attending to that ha has been uh, very important to me. And 
I, I think it's also important to say that uh, as, as successful as one might be with that, it's the sort of um, realization and it's the sort of, of engagement for which you have to be constantly attentive um, because you can easily discover how your willingness to be engaged is situational. And uh, how might you find yourself being who you <laughs> desire to be and who you think yourself to be in some situations, but not in others. And I, um, it's, it's this vigilance that I think is the kind of um, practice that we're all called to have, that, that the vigilance is not an indication of, oh, we haven't perfected it or, or somehow or another uh, at the place that we've arrived is deficient. No, it's, it's just the way things are. We're always, I think, people in the process of discovering that as much as we've grown, um, our growth is in, is in our makeup. And I think recognizing um, how important it is to be stewards of our growth enables us to have uh, some humility about our achievements as well as uh, hopefully some humility when we find ourselves in very strange situations that seem to uh, upend uh, the kinds of things that we felt were behind us. I have a sense of you, Luther, as having that vigilance for yourself. Um, when you said, I'm now, I now can be available to the conflict that is, it would mean that you're available to you. Yes. And there is that self-remembering. And in that moment, which is the virtue of type nine, mm. and from that, the connection with the other is made with depth and intimacy. Um, but that vigilance and availability toward myself, what I'm just hearing you say, allows me to connect with the other in some open-hearted and intimate ways. Yes. To be present. So Luther, if you had time to spend with your 25-year-old self or your young adult self, uh, what wisdom might you offer to that one? I would say to my 25-year-old self, trust the decisions you're making to prepare yourself for the next step that in some way is a creative response to your heart. Do not um, do not feel as if you have to have a goal some five or 10 or 15 or 20 years out that will somehow or another determine not only your career, but your associations, um, as well as perhaps some things that you're not really interested in, but somehow or another must be done in order to uh, reach the uh, expectations of, of who you will be in five or 10 or 15 years. But, but take seriously what you now feel, Luther, what you now think, Luther, about the very next steps that are a response to the reality of your heart. Um, and I would say that because in many ways, I feel this is the way in which I've lived my life. And I have felt um, very appreciative of, of the outcomes from that. And so to the 25 year old, I would just want to give the assurance that um, there, there is joy in that kind of decision. Others may think 
that's being very idealistic. It may even seem to not be taking seriously, uh, you know, thinking long-term about your future, um, or even the question of how is the larger community perhaps going to be placing expectations on you that you do not have for yourself now. Um, tr trust your heart and uh, give your preparation to that. And uh, for me, it has been a journey of, of trusting that this is who God has called me to, to be, <laughs> not in terms of some um, fabricated image in the future, but in terms of someone who is truly available to life and possibility and insight um, step by step. Um, not in terms of, as far as I can see, but hopefully in terms of what I'm able to now feel and sense to be right. So that's, that's, that's what I would want my 25 year old self to, to hear. You know, I thank you. It, I um, I got teary hearing you, and I realized that when I sat in your classroom uh, in 1994, I was 25 years old, um, and I I heard from you as a professor what you just said, and I was able to receive that that trusting of my heart. Um, so, oh, thank you. Hmm. So powerful, Chris. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Luther, it's been a such a rich time with you. To be with you has been a rich time for me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Luther. Thank you so much. I've been anticipating this time with you, not <laughs> knowing, of course, where we would be going together necessarily, but uh, again, the step-by-step, -step, trusting uh, that just being with you is sufficient in itself. Thank you. Well, with tears in our eyes and heartfelt gratitude, I'm Sandra. And I'm Chris. And we invite you to continue to look courageously and lovingly and with open hearts at what is. We want to thank all who've made this podcast a reality, including Wake Forest University Program for Leadership and Character for their financial and institutional support. Sally Ann Morris, who created our theme music, and Logan Greenhall, who's been a great website guru for us. Also, thanks to Eric Merle for his quality editing expertise. Special thanks to the Narrative Enneagram and our mentors, Helen Palmer and Dr. David Daniels, its founders. And of course, a big thank you to all of our guests. For more information about this podcast and how to get a copy of our book, this serves as a companion for deepening personal and spiritual growth, visit heartoftheenneagram.com. And be sure to click the subscribe link so you don't miss an episode. In the days that lie ahead, may your mind be curious, your heart courageous, and your presence compassionate.